Welcome to the A Fire Podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson. The world is changing, and that's a good thing. You know, that's a headline on the cover of Standard Real Estate Investors' website. And I was very struck about that because we talk a lot about change, uh, about the change that is happening right now, especially during a time of COVID. And rarely do we speak in optimistic terms. Well, we're going to be different today because I have three of the leaders from Standard to speak with us about change and other things and where we should go in real estate. Uh, Robert Zhu and uh, Jerome Nichols, who are co-founders of the firm, and uh, Subraja, a principal at the firm Standard, um, are here to help walk me through a few things and hopefully make me a little bit more optimistic about change. So thank you for joining me, all of you, on the AFIRE podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. So we should probably just start uh, with uh, Robert and Jerome. Um, and, and I do find, uh, and I encourage everyone who hasn't had a chance, read Standard Real Estate Investors' website. I think it's it's a beautiful piece uh, in, in of itself. Uh, tell me a little bit about why you got started with the firm and the kinds of things that you are doing and reaching for in the years to come. Sure. Standard real estate investments is uh, certainly about change. It, it's a change for us. It's a newish firm, so it's worth some good context behind the origin. Uh, Robert and I came from CBRE, Global Investors, and we started, call it six months ago, uh, we led the development platform there, including five funds uh, totaling $3.7 billion in gross asset value. Robert, portfolio manager, I was his deputy portfolio manager, uh, also led the firm's development sourcing activities for uh, our separate accounts as well. And in that process, um, had good seats, had a great run, made a lot of great people. But 2020, for us, uh, like a lot of people, was extremely transformational. Uh, made the last investment in our fifth fund, uh, and then COVID hit, work from home, all the things you think about when you're home with your family for a year. And then uh, beyond that, we had a recession and then the George Floyd death and then the social impact movement that happened uh, right behind that. All those things happening in the same period of time for us. And uh, as, as you know, two of very few senior diverse executives at the firm, it, it felt more like a call to action than, than something we had been joking about for, for years, which was starting our own firm. So. Um, that was the origin of Standard, and, and we started um, to make new kinds of investments, do the same business, but, but with more, more impact uh, for ourselves financially, but also uh, showing leadership within the real estate industry and, and the communities at large. Uh, so that's, that's how we started. In terms of a name, uh, it comes from 
my grandfather's bank. So my grandfather in the 80s had started a bank in Los Angeles, Chinatown, with his partners called Standard Savings Bank that was focused on providing access to capital for Chinese immigrants who were settling in the San Gabriel Valley who otherwise couldn't get mainstream bank financing. And that tradition of uh, seeing people for who they are and um, their uh, potential, um, I think, is something that we would like to do in our new company, um, obviously relative to the work that we're doing as opposed to banking. That's not what our business is. But, but our, right. our, our, our business is about investing in real estate nationally, um, taking our expertise that we've gotten uh, from an institutional perspective and uh, applying it to this cause. Um, our first key focus uh, is on um, attainably priced housing. And what we mean by that is housing that um, has a rent level that is market rate, but um, is at a price point that it makes sense for people who are our essential workers in the country right now. And we think that a big part of the problem is we, we need to build more of that in order to uh, keep those rent levels where they need to be. Couldn't agree with you more. And certainly I hear from a lot of uh, AFIRE members, uh, international institutions, that are particularly interested in that part of the housing market and understanding how they can invest at scale. What has the response been uh, so far uh, to your approach and what you're trying to do? Are you getting some support? Are you getting people that are standing in your way? Or how is it going? No, I, I, I think that there is a moment happening right now in the country that we're really excited about. A broad coalition of folks that have a sensitivity to the challenges that we as a country are facing uh, that are working together uh, to, to try to address them in our industry and outside of our industry. And so we, we've been met with open arms um, in terms of the beginnings of, of this process. It's, it's certainly a long road, um, but you know the way that we approach the world is generously and of service, and um, we think about it in terms of partnerships. So whether it's an investor or a developer partner or whomever, if they have shared values with us in terms of trying to address these issues, um, we're excited about doing business. That's fantastic. And, and, and that, plus the story of your grandfather, Robert, I am now feeling more optimistic. So, you know, mission accomplished, we can go home. But, uh, you know. <laughs> well, um, I, I'd like to actually, I'd like to talk to Chubra about um, her article uh, that she was good enough to write for the latest issue of the Summit Journal um, called Recasting Risk and Return uh, that got at this a little bit, but but went a little deeper on a few other issues. So I thought, Shubra, that it really eloquently challenged, if not punctured, a few assumptions that uh, are underlying the multifamily uh, business. Uh, what do you think is most important for investors to take away from your article, what is what is the kind of transformation of of mindset that you're looking for in this piece? Which again, I'm just trying to encourage everyone to read it. I think it's really kind of interesting. But let's give a little bit of a preview here. Well, thanks, uh, thanks, Gunnar, for the kind words. Um, you know, as I was re- writing this article, I think I was challenging a lot of my own personal assumptions because I've been in the institutional real estate world for way too long. I won't tell you how many years, uh, but uh, you know. How do we think about risk? How do we think about returns in this new world? So as a responsible investor um, in this post-pandemic, post-George Floyd world that we are going to be in, 
um, I think uh, we do need to uh, challenge those long-held assumptions, right? And sort of broaden the, the aperture of the lens through which we frame our risk-return decision-making. So I think for me, as I researched uh, on the article and wrote it, the, the most important takeaway for me personally was that there is a market-driven opportunity for mid-tier housing. Uh, call it affordable, attainable, workforce, doesn't matter. There is a massive opportunity to build a new product in that segment of the housing market. I think the second most important takeaway uh, was, um, like, no longer can we just say, oh, it doesn't pencil out, so let's just, you know, go ahead and keep building more upscale and luxury housing. I think we need to get creative in how we solve for that challenge, um, and to bring to bear what we are saying. So, you know, it's it's no longer the time for just walking away from the problem or ignoring it is no longer there, right? Yeah. And I think the third more personal takeaway for me was underrepresentation. Um, personally, I have been in the industry for far too long, know that it is a real problem, right? And um, I think not just talk about diversity and inclusion, but really support those diversity voices diverse viewpoints, and amplify them. Mm -hmm. so those, I think, are the three most important things I hope people take away from the article. One of the things that always strikes me um, on all three of your points is how much everyone does talk about them, uh, but acting on it is difficult, and, and not necessarily for the reasons that we think. I think sometimes there is a kind of inertia that builds. I think there's also a kind of, you know, I don't want to stick my neck out and be in front of uh, where everyone else is, even if it's economics 101, supply, demand, it's, you know, it's basic stuff that should be there. It's just what it means to be a decent human being, all those kinds of things. There's still, I think, a tendency to say, I'm, I, I don't want to get too far out from where everyone else um, is. And I wonder, and, and, and I'll open it up to all three of you from the standpoint, in, in terms of how, how do we move from that that place of, uh, okay, this is what should be done. We can all nod our heads and go, Shubra is absolutely right. How do we move from there to action? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, doing more of the same is easy for a lot of people. I mean, if you look at this, this room, this podcast studio, uh, it, it's hard for us to show up and, and do more of the same because no matter what we do, we're going to be different. So taking that, that next step to actually doing what you say, it, it, we're that much closer to it. Um, because we're already going to be received in some respects as being different. So, you know what? Let's lean into it and go all the way. Um, right. that, that's how we think about it. And I'll, yeah. I'll just re yeah. reiterate the, the opportunity part of it, right? I mean, yeah. when you think about uh, the housing deficit in the country, right? I was just reading a report from Freddie Mac which said 29 most populous states have a housing deficit collectively of 3.3 million housing units. And when you think, put that in context of how much we build in a year, uh, in the last decade, we've built about, give or take, a million housing units per year. So you see that huge supply-demand mismatch, right? And then on top of that, you layer in the fact that almost 50% of renter households in the country are paying more than 30 in some cases, more than 50% of their income on rent. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, you hear 
you, we've all seen this in the last two decades, the super majority of apartment units being built have been luxury or upscale. I mean, you put all that together, I don't see how you can not do something about it, right? Yeah. And there is a well, risk in actually well, walking away from that opportunity. What, what is astonishing to me is that, again, everyone took some sort of economics course, or if they didn't, they picked up the bits and pieces from it, is that the highest risk place to be is adding supply in an oversupplied market. That's the biggest risk. Um, you have to do it perfectly. Um, and I guess everyone assumes that they're doing it perfectly and they're stealing share from everyone else. But uh, I, I like being in an audience in a, in a market where I have lots of rope, where you know I can do some dumb things and still make money. And if you're in a high demand, low supply market, it just seems to me that's the, the, the smartest place to be. Uh, but those perceptions are, are tough. Uh, Shubra, when, when you were writing this, and you, think about the uh, investors and what they're doing in this area in terms of affordable or, or uh, uh, you know, I don't know what we call this housing that doesn't have tax credits attached to it. You, you had a term for it. I, I missed. We call it attainable housing. Attainable housing. I, I think that's actually a fantastic term for it. Um, is that what is it that investors currently, what is the mainstream currently missing? Um, and what do they need to do to fix that? I think, uh, I, I don't think investors, I think they are aware of the opportunity. I think they are aware of that massive middle demand, right? I think the what Jerome and Robert alluded to, um, there's a little bit of a group think, right? A little bit of the risk is in the inertia and how do we rethink all that we've been doing all these past many decades? How do we start to sort of dismantle it and rebuild? Um, so I, I think they're aware because I know that in the last yeah. so many years, we've had investors question what we were doing, right? Why are yeah. you building luxury housing when there is, all we hear about is issues of affordability? And it got harder and harder to answer that question, right? So I think that investors are aware. They are ready. They just need good partners, and we'll be there for that. Um, and, you know, I think that it's, um, it's, 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 it's about educating ourselves as investors. It's about you know, the three of us have a combined 50-plus years of experience in the institutional real world business, right? We bring that expertise, we bring that experience, we bring our passion to this, but we have to unlearn some of the things we've learned and we have to learn a whole lot of new things. And I think there is a lot of hard work that's gonna be on the horizon for us to do this. It's not gonna be easy. I think there is genuine befuddlement among investors about the complexity of the task at hand. You talk to any low-income or affordable housing developer, they'll talk about the complex capital stack. That's yeah. the word you'll often hear. And I think if we can apply some creativity to how do we simplify that, I think um, we need to get better at leveraging public partner, public-private partnerships, uh, reduce that land acquisition cost, um, reduce the burden of the regulatory framework. I think we have many regulations that are not bad, uh, but there are some that are really bad. Um, and they have been in place for 50, 60, 70 years. And I think they have a history of prejudice and racism yeah. uh, and redlining built into them. We need to have a total rethink on those as well. So I think there's a lot of hard work that lays ahead for us. And 
you know, we need to get to work on it. That's, Absolutely. That's no. just that's just the way it is. We are ready for it. It has to be done. We'll get to it. Well, and it has to be called for what it is. So you brought up the term redlining and you talked about the zoning, uh, the kind of racist and, and, and uh, unfair kind of zoning practices that are baked in from 70, 80 years ago all over the country. You know, certainly, you know, there's no kind of place where we're free from it. But at least within our world of real estate, I think it sometimes comes as a surprise. It hasn't really been pointed out. It hasn't been called out as an issue that we need to address in real estate. So I'm, I'm just thrilled to hear you say that that's, it sounds like that's what you're going to be doing. We have to. I mean, I think that is the whole point of us partnering with uh, underrepresented developers, uh, minority developers, because I think they have a point of view. They have the connections to their communities. That is going to be one of the key factors that helps us sort of break through this logjam and groupthink. So how do you think investors should adjust their strategies for the years to come? What are the, the new risks and the new opportunities that we need to pay closer attention to? I think the risk is in walking away from the challenge. I mean, any investment carries with it risk. Uh, there will be risk associated with this strategy as well, uh, but not doing anything and uh, uh, ignoring sort of the obvious disparities in access to housing is just too big a problem to walk away from. Yeah, I, I think to the point of, you know, the problem, um, you know, people get paid to solve problems. That, that's how capitalism works. You identify a problem, you identify a solution, and then we create you know, an investment case around that. So that's what we're doing. Um, so whether those problems are, are social in nature, around housing affordability or diversity, if you attack the problem, there's money in fixing it. Um, and, and that's where we sit, that, that the nexus of, of how you make money at solving uh, this problem for, for our investors and, and return capital. Um, and then from a risk standpoint, uh, I mean, to your point, Gunnar, you're right. I mean, you know, where do you want to be delivering housing that people can afford when there isn't enough of it? And guess what? I've never seen a, a, you know, a vacant apartment building. You, know, you, you may be off by, by rents, you know, 5%, 10%, but you know, one-year leases and it fills up. So, so I, I like that trade and that opportunity. Well, and, and part of, let's put it this way. Let's imagine someone uh, listening to this, to this podcast goes, okay, great. This is exciting. Um, how, and there are blind spots that are baked in all over the place that you guys have talked about um, over the last 10 minutes or so in, in terms of things that are keeping investors from seeing the opportunity, from understanding the risk of where they are right now. Any any advice in terms of how one can remove one's blinders, how to improve one's strategic sight in this environment? Well, I, I think it, it has a lot to do with this notion of uh, folks working together uh, to address the issue and um, uh, not presuming uh, that we, we figured it all out. Um, we, I don't feel like we've figured it out. Um, we've got a approach. Um, we've got an idea. We're super excited that Schuber's on the team uh, to give us a, a broad lens in terms of the academic background for the actions that we're trying to take. But, but I think you have to uh, partner with people and 
and listen to them and um, work together to solve these issues. What are the three of you most optimistic about? What, what's going to happen that's good, given that change is good? Uh, what's going to happen over the next five to 10 years? I, well, first of all, I'm super excited to be coming into this new environment after having everybody been reflecting for the past year and a half about who they are and what they want to do with themselves. And, um, and, and I'm, I feel like folks are uh, interested in a new kind of capitalism um, in the states that um, helps address a lot of these issues. And I think that we're going to make a dent in a lot of them. Um, that's probably at core what I'm most optimistic about is that I feel like we're moving into an environment where the old zero-sum game notion of our industry is is starting to fade a little bit. And the idea of a partnership and folks working together to solve problems is on the rise. And, um, you know, what, that's what makes us optimistic, I think, at core. Your optimism is very infectious. Thank you. Uh, you've given me a jolt of hope for uh, today, tomorrow, and for many days to come. I very much appreciate it. Uh, and I appreciate the three of you working on projects like this that are so important. Uh, I think everyone who's listening to this should make a point of reading Shubra's article and going in depth on some of the data that she's pulled together and perhaps uh, adjust some of your thinking around whether or not something is risky or profitable and look at things in a slightly different way. Um, I think it's very much worth the time. I uh, also want to recommend that anyone who's listening, make sure that you subscribe, if you haven't already, to our podcast through the many subscription services that are out there that we're listed on. And I, those include Apple, Amazon, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. So make sure you do that today. Meanwhile, um, I have to thank the three of you for joining me uh, on today's podcast. You've been listening to the A-Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A-Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A-Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. A-Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in the A-Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A-Fire. To learn more about the A-Fire Podcast, including underwriting guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast. Thank you.